0: Matthew chapter 13, let's begin reading in verse 1. Matthew chapter 13, in verse 1. This is an incredible passage of scripture. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them and other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. I don't know about you, but sometimes I look around at the culture of what's going on inside the church, outside the church, and I get just profoundly discouraged and pessimistic. Can anybody identify with that? And things are just uh, awful. Sometimes I don't know what's going on out there. It's just just an awful situation. There was a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith. And this a few years ago. He decided that he wanted to identify what the faith of America was going to be like in the 21st century and beyond. So he took 3,000 high school students, juniors and seniors in high school, and used them as a case study and just interviewed them. It took two years to do it. What is the faith going to be in America? And here's what he found out. He found out that these high school students believed that there was a God but this God was different than the God of the Bible. He wasn't really involved in life. The actual academic word is deism. He existed, but wasn't really in the affairs of people's life. He wanted us to be good, so he was moralistic kind of God. But that wasn't his function. His function wasn't to make us good. His function was to help them, you know, get along with their parents feel better about the life choices they are all gonna make. So his conclusion, Christian Smith, is that the future of religion in America wasn't Judaism, it wasn't Islam, it wasn't Christianity, but what he's called therapeutic moralistic deism. And that's, uh, that's the good news. The bad news is, is that when he drilled down, these students didn't call it therapeutic moralistic deism. What they called it was Christianity. So in other words, His take on it was, it's not that Christianity has been replaced by something else, rather it's been colonized. So you see what I'm saying? All the infrastructure of the faith, in our case the Baptist faith, stays, but how we understand it is completely and radically different than the God of the Bible. And this was a few years ago. This means this isn't some future problem we need to anticipate. This is a present reality with which we have to deal. It's it's enough to make you wonder, you know, what is the future of this? What's the future of the gospel? And two studies came out a few years ago, one on church attendance in America. One said the highest percent. think about this, the highest percentage study gave it at 24%, the lowest percentage gave it at 18%, only 18% of Americans attend church. Out of those 18%, only 50% were what we call evangelicals. In other words, they really believe the Bible. But when he drilled down on this, the study found that only 50% of that 50% actually believed that Jesus Christ alone was the way of salvation. So all that to say, if you believe this Bible is true, you're among a minority, among a minority, among a minority. Really, where's all this going? What's the future of the faith? Even our own denomination, Southern Baptists, did a study back in 2007, and they found that when someone graduated from high school, from a Christian, from a Baptist, Southern Baptist church, in their youth group, 60% of them weren't in church by the time when they were 22. 60%. So again, what is the future of all of this? And if you can identify with that emotion, then you can understand the way Jesus' disciples felt. Ever since they were little bitty boys, they had taught that even though Jews had been persecuted by the Assyrians and the Romans and the the Babylonians and the Assyrians, that one day a Messiah was going to rise up who's going to be this great military religious figure and he's going to come and bring the royal messianic beat down all the enemies of, of Israel. And he came. Jesus came. So the disciples went and attached themselves to him. But it wasn't very long till they realized that Jesus had a very different agenda when he said things like the kingdom of God is within you. That he actually wasn't going to tear down the political and military infrastructures that existed that day. So they began to be wondered, okay, Jesus, where's all this going? In the context of what we're reading, Matthew 11 and 12 really tells it all. Because the religious set, it tells us, was rejecting Christ. Whole cities were rejecting Christ. And worst of all is in John chapter 11, where John the Baptist, the person who Jesus said is the greatest person who ever lived, is in prison for Jesus. He sent word and said, um, hey, did I did I really hear you correctly? Are you you really the Messiah? So here's his number one evangelist and his rock-solid faith. It's getting soft. It's getting molten. And the disciples have to be wondering, is there any future for this kingdom Jesus is talking about? And so in an effort to encourage them, he tells them a story. But it's actually not any kind of story. It's a parabole, is the Greek word. It means to throw alongside. So here's the idea. You have this abstract principle. In this case, what's the future of the kingdom? And Jesus throws alongside it a concrete story. So if you can get this concrete story, then you can understand the abstract principle he's trying to teach. Now here's the story. They're in first century Palestine. It's an agricultural community. So he tells an agricultural story. In those days, when they would sow seed in the ground, Don't think of, you know, the huge farmlands of Kansas and Oklahoma. You would take a guy with a small field. He had a a bag, like a messenger bag around him, and he would do what's called broadcast sowing. He'd reach in, grab some seed, and he would throw that out. The ground was so rocky, as you know, if you've ever been to Israel, you can't take all the rocks away. It's impossible. There's too many. You just have to throw them out there and do the best you can. And so there's different types of soil. He knows as the seed is thrown out, there's different types of soil. And so that's what Jesus' story is about. These four different types of soil or four different types of responses to the gospel. And then he gets to the end of the story. And look at what he says in verse nine. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, this is very important. Isn't it the same thing, hearing and listening? Well, those of you like me that have small children will know there's a difference between hearing and listening, right? And so you'll say, did you hear me? And what you're not saying is, are there actual physical ears attached to your head? You're asking, are you listening? I know you can hear me. Are you listening? And so Jesus says, look, if y'all can hear me, this is so critical. You better listen to this. And the sense of the passages, at the disciples are going, that's right. You better, all oh, y'all better listen to what he said. Listen to him. But Look at verse 10. They get inside together. So he's talked to the crowd, the larger crowd. Then he gets to the inner circle of the disciples. When the disciples came to him, they said, why do you speak to them in parables? In other words, hey, I'm glad they all need to listen to you. But Jesus, yeah, what are you, what are you saying really? We don't, we don't understand. And Jesus says to them, just skimming through these next few verses, verse 15, for these people's heart has grown dull. So many people can't hear this, but look at verse 16, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. So in other words, a lot of people aren't going to get this, but you are. So again, disciples, you got to laser focus in on this. You you have to get this. This parable, the first major parable Jesus tells is really a metaphor for understanding everything else he's going to say about the kingdom. So again, here's the story. It's so important. Jesus explains it line by line. It answers the question, what is the future of the gospel? So here it is. Look at verse 18. Here's Jesus' explanation. Here then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So remember the first type of soil, the seed is thrown out. It lands on one of these footpaths that would have wandered through these places where they would have tried to sow their, their, their seed here in this field. It lays down the footpath. It's hard, uh, no topsoil there. It can't penetrate. A bird comes and takes it away. And Jesus says, sometimes when the gospel goes out, it's gonna land on a hard, hard heart. And by the way, have you ever had that experience? You try to share your faith with somebody and you might as well be trying to sow seed on the parking lot out here. It just lays there on the topsoil. I've had that experience as a preacher. i stayed up here and I'm just preaching my guts out and some old boys in back. He's only here because, you know, his mother-in-law's in town. His wife says he can't watch NASCAR. He's got to come to church. He schleps him in here and his arms are full. I mean, I could preach as hard as I want. It doesn't matter. That seed is not penetrating. It's a hard, hard heart. In fact, back in the verse we read, verse 15, for these people's heart has grown dull. That word dull there is the Greek word from which we get a word pachyderm, like the skin of a rhino or an elephant. It's just not going to be penetrated. And he says that seed is laying here, the birds snatch it away, and it's the metaphor for the devil coming and taking away that that opportunity. It doesn't mean they can never be saved again, but in a sense, when they reject the gospel, they become a co laborer for the devil who never wants them to have this opportunity again. So, okay, Jesus, what's the future of the gospel? And he says, here it is. I'll tell you, here's the future of the gospel. It's going to be rejected because some people have hard, hard hearts. here's the second soil. Look at the next verse, verse 20. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Well, that's what you want. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the crown of the word, look at this next word, immediately. With the same speed in which that person receives it, he, uh, he falls away. Have you ever had this experience? Your Bible fellowship group, your Sunday school class, or maybe in your own family, someone attaches themselves to it, or they join the church, and they just, uh, they just take off. They're excited about it. They're passionate about it. You think, oh, my word, this is unbelievable. But pretty soon, Jesus says, persecution arises on account of the word. What does that mean? Well, the word, in this context, would have been the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says things like, uh, love your enemies. Divest in this world to invest in the life to come. Don't retaliate, but do good to those who hate you. And they hear that message, and they go, I don't, I don't really... I don't really want that. I like the culture. I like the fellowship. I like being around. I like the activities, but I don't want that message. And they can't stomach it, so they dislodge it. They just get rid of it. About uh, five years ago now, I, was, uh, I got a chance to go to Angola, Louisiana. Some of you may know what's in Angola, Louisiana. Louisiana is unusual as a state, and then they take all the people who have a life sentence and they put them in one location. It's a, it's a prison, but it's over 5,000 acres, if you can imagine this. They actually have a gift shop. You can buy a t-shirt there that says world's largest gated community. That's the truth. You really can. It was also known as one of the bloodiest prisons in America, but they've had massive reform largely because of a Southern Baptist college who actually went into their campus. And so it's a great story if you want to read about that. And I got to go and go on death row. And I met a guy and I'm standing out here in the hall and he's of course behind bars. And I said, Well, tell me your story. And he began to share with me. And I said, Well, have you ever you ever been to church? And he made this statement, convicted of murder. He made this statement, I'll never forget. He said, oh yeah, he said, I grew up in church. It just never grew up in me. I thought that's that's the the second soil. You you can't see it, because we can't see below the surface. All you can see is growing up. But what you don't see is while they're growing up, they're not growing down. And if you're not going to stay around, you don't want to put your roots down. And so pretty soon some persecution comes. And just as quickly as they come in, they go out. And now you look around that Sunday school classroom and there's that empty seat. You know the one I'm talking about? And it's empty, it just sits there as a monument to a shriveled up, dried up old faith. Jesus says, okay church, here's the future of the gospel. First of all, it's gonna be rejected because of hardness. But secondly, it's gonna be rejected because of shallowness. And here's the third response. Look back at the passage. Look at the next verse, verse 22. Ask for what was sown among the thorns. This is the third type of soil. This is the one who hears the word, just like the second one. But the cares of this world, reading their distractions would be a good word. The distractions of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes, what's that last word? Unfruitful. So here's somebody who, just like that second soul, they receive the word, they take off, everything looks like it's great, but two things creep in. First of all, the deceitfulness of riches. Riches in and of themselves aren't inherently bad, but when you become the focus of things, then you're, you're deceived because they're temporal, they're not eternal. And so if all of our ambition of life rotates around money, then we're deceived. And that deceitfulness of riches, is like a weed wrapping itself around that plant, begins to choke it out. But the other thing he says that chokes it out is the cares of the world. What are the cares of the world? Well, it's not things that are inherently evil. It's just a soccer practice, school, and business, and ballet, and life, busyness, and family. You say, what's wrong with those things? Well, nothing. But when those become the object of life, pretty soon they, they can't compete. Jesus said, you can either serve God or you can serve this life. And so you can't have stomach for both of them. And so eventually what happens is your passions are torn. And so those deceitfulness of riches and the cares of the world come in and they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So there the plant is standing, if you will, but it's, it's not bearing fruit. And by the way, somebody asked me one time, we were talking about this passage. They said, do you think this third soil Is a Christian or not a Christian? In other words, we know the first type of soul is not a Christian, right? They never never even get the seed. The second one's clearly not because we thought they were for a while, but they proved that they weren't by the fact that they didn't last. But this third one is still standing. It's just not bearing fruit. Could this be the case that it's not an unbeliever? This is just a believer who's a non-fruit-bearing Christian. Well, the answer to the question is absolutely not. This person is definitely not a Christian. We say, how do you know this? Because there is no such thing as a non-fruit-bearing Christian. That may be a Bible doctrine, but it's Baptist doctrine, but it's not a Bible doctrine. You say, well, can't people manifest different types of fruit at different times? Of course. In fact, Jesus is going to make that point later. It comes out in different ways. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. We all have different types of fruit. But there are two evidences for a believer clear in this passage and through the rest of the scripture. They have to bear fruit and they have to remain. And by the way, if I could just say as an aside, this is why when you send us to someone to a seminary to train them for, be a student minister, a music minister, or especially a pastor, we teach them this one thing. Let your ministry be driven by the word of God. You say, why are you saying that? Just because you're an uptight seminary professor? Well, that's part of it, but that's not the only reason. The reason is because, watch this, listen carefully, it's only in exposure to the seed that you know what type of soul you are. The reason why some people think it's okay to be non-fruit-bearing but still be a Christian is because they've never been exposed to the text. So many of them in the Bible, let's say, just the opposite of that. And it's so incredibly possible, and it's happening this morning, to fill buildings with people all over the state of Texas and Oklahoma where I grew up. They're good people. They love to come to church. They love the activities. But the pastor's not clearly explaining the Word of God, and they don't know what type of soil they are. If you have a dynamic ministry that's filled with a phenomenal communicator, but he's not leading that place from the explanation of Scripture, that place simply becomes a greenhouse for cultivating the third soil. And so as an aside from my side, by the way, I just thank God for your pastor, by the way. Um, I've studied, been a lot of doctoral students and master students. He's one of the good ones. And I know he's committed to explaining, explaining Scriptures. So Jesus says, look, things are hard, first century Palestine, things are hard, 21st century United States. Here's what I want to tell you. Here's the future. Here's what's going to happen. The gospel is going to be rejected because of hardness. It's going to be rejected because of distractions, and it's going to be rejected because of shallowness. And right now you're thinking, I thought Jesus was trying to encourage people. You know, this is unequivocally the most depressing sermon I've ever heard in my my life. Actually, it's phenomenally encouraging, but because of everything that's going on in verse 23, all the encouragement is backloaded in this last verse. Let's look at it together, Matthew 13, 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, this is the good soil, and understands it. Understanding there is not intellectual sin, it's obedience. In other words, they hear the word and they act on it. Indeed, he bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, another thirty. Now we see the point that Jesus tried to make. The gospel is going to be rejected. The gospel is going to be rejected. And the gospel is going to be rejected. But everywhere the gospel is sown in some form, there will be true disciples who will bear fruit. Yesterday I had... Lunch with a guy, a good friend of mine, who's from Australia. Australia says it's a Christian nation, but it's by far a secular state. But he's this dynamic believer so with an incredible testimony. So why is he a believer, but so many people in Australia aren't? Because everywhere the gospel goes out, in some form, true disciples will bear fruit. One of my best PhD students is a guy named Rodney Masona. He's from Zambia. A lot of unbelievers in Zambia. So why are there so many unbelievers in Zambia? But Rodney's a believer. It's because everywhere the gospel goes out, the true disciples will bear fruit. I'm from Oklahoma, so not anybody in Oklahoma is a Christian. Why am I a Christian? It's just because we're good people up there. That's why it's. No, that's not why. Now listen very carefully. The reason why has nothing to do with the soil. Watch this. It has everything to do with the seed. Are you listening? It has nothing to do with the soil. Our optimism comes From from the seed, the power of the seed. So if you ask me, are you discouraged or are you encouraged? Oh, absolutely, I'm encouraged. (laughs) You say, how how would you said about the future of America and our political system, how in any sense could you be encouraged after what Jesus said? How can you be encouraged? Because listen, my confidence is not in the soil, my confidence is in the seed, And to mix metaphors a little bit, in John chapter four, Jesus refers to himself as the seed, which means when the seed of the gospel is planted in us, the life of Christ is born out of us and Christ is the king of the kingdom. So to doubt the success of the kingdom is to doubt the success of the king. But the kingdom is advancing because the king is ruling. Long live the king. Now listen. For any any thinking person, who just reads this parable and its face value, all I've done is just read it. There can be no other Christian position but optimism. Or optimism. You have to be optimistic. I see in my heart sometimes some pessimism, right? We see this pessimism come out when we evangelize. We evangelize like this. You know, hey, I know you really don't want to hear this and you're probably not going to receive this, so you don't really have to hear me out. But let me tell you something. We see this pessimism grow out in our churches during vacation Bible school. Someone stands up and says, hey, praise God. We had 20 or 50, 100 children profess Christ. And we're thinking, yeah, how many of those are going to stick, I wonder? You say, well, wait a minute. I'm not God. Why why, why else would I not think that way? That's the whole point. We're not God. I don't know. So, since we don't know, why not take the position that until they prove otherwise, they're new entrance into the kingdom, new initiates into the kingdom of God, and cultivate them as such. The kingdom is advancing because the king is ruling. So the question this morning is not how bad is our political system. It's worse than you think it is, by the way. The question is not um, how awful is America. There's not about what about the future? Here's the question, let's very carefully. One question: Who's the king? Because if Jesus is king, by definition, you'd have to say that means God is king. Does he have a good kingdom or a bad kingdom? Is God doing a bad job or a good job? Is he letting a lot of things slide, or does he actually have this in control? If you answer that one question, he's king, it leads us to a position of spiritual optimism. Some people I know, this is going to come as a, a great discouragement to them that we have to be optimistic. I have some friends that have the spiritual gift of, discouragement um do you have anybody like this in your life especially the ones that are politically involved i mean i I love all y'all if you're involved in politics but they'll come up to me and say hey did you what had you hear what happened on the news last night and my internal monologue is is thinking "Well, I, i think i'm about to i don't think i can get out of this conversation right now you're about to tell me what you know what happened oh it's awful you know it's terrible and uh, they've got this whole inner monologue, you know, or inner thing that's going on. Bill O'Reilly's the prophet Elijah for them, tells them everything that they should uh, believe. You now, the Antichrist is either from one or two political parties, depending on how you, how you see it. It's, it's awful. Now, listen, the, the seedy underbelly of the American political system is worse than we could ever imagine. But at the end of the day, they're not in charge, Jesus is. And at the end of the day, we can be optimistic because the king is still on his throne. The kingdom is advancing because the king is ruling. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. There are other friends of mine, a little bit younger than me, and maybe you know this if you're on church culture or not, but there's a set of church culture, uh, kind of a, if I could not throw anybody under the bus, but kind of a Christian hipster set. And not all of them, but some of them have built an entire religion on cynicism. So if you ask them, what do you believe? Well, I tell you what I don't believe. Oh, okay, what do you believe? Well, I tell you what's wrong with them. Oh, okay, but what do you believe? The whole, the whole thing is built on a cynical reaction. You First Baptist, Georgetown, you guys are so out of touch with reality. Can't believe you meet here singing these songs. You just—if your pastor could get a little hipper and greener, be more involved in social justice. If you get him in some skinny jeans or something, if you just make him just a little bit more progressive, then you could finally get somewhere and say, "Okay, it, you can build your whole faith on citizens," but it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is still on His throne. The kingdom is advancing because the King is ruling, and Jesus is pushing us in the corner, saying, "Okay, do you believe that? Do you believe?" that I am on the throne ruling my kingdom. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You say, okay, let's say that that's true. That Jesus isn't missing things. He's not just behind on a lot of stuff. That He's actually still on his throne right now. Then what do we do with all the enemies of the kingdom? Right? Like Like the really loud atheists, the new atheists. Like the people who hate Christians around the world, what do you do with those? And I think that is an excellent question that we have to ask and not be afraid to ask out loud. If Jesus is on the throne, then why do so many atheists exist? Why do people who hate the name of Christ killing Christians around the world, why does that go on if Jesus is on his throne? That's a great question. And Jesus anticipating that question, he actually answers it in the next parable. Look at the next parable. The parable of the weeds is found in verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So in the end, another agricultural metaphor, a guy sowing seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And the word weeds there is not just an average weed, that was actually a tear. In other words, it was the type of weed that looks exactly like wheat. They were indistinguishable. So the reason why this was such an awful thing is because the farmer goes out one day and he's got a field. It's full of weed and wheat, and he doesn't know the difference. (laughs) You understand? One bad crop, his family doesn't eat the next year. This is a this is a life-altering, devastating thing that the enemy has done to him. So look what happens next. Verse twenty-six: When the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Weeds didn't have grain in them; the wheat did. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, "Hey, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? And Why does it have weeds?" He said to them, "Well, an enemy has done this." So the servants said, him, "Okay, look. Then do you want us to go and gather them?" But he said to them, "No, lest gather in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them." But just to jump ahead a little bit, Jesus is going to unpack this parable for us also. But it's a parable for the world, the whole world. Jesus says the field represents the world. And in this whole world, Jesus owns, he's planted wheat everywhere. And we think of it's the opposite. We think that, you know, this is Satan's world and we just are interlopers in It's the opposite. The truth of the matter is this is God's world. He's planted his wheat all over the world. But Satan has come and put weeds among the wheat. You say, well, where did he put those weeds? Well, the, among the wheat. So everywhere you have wheat, there's weeds. So someone says, boy, I was a part of this church and there were some people in there that were awful. And Jesus' response, if he were here today, would be, well, of course. I, 2,000 years ago, I told you this way. Wherever there's weeds, where there's wheat, there's gonna be weeds. They're there in every sphere of life, in the church, politics, education system. Wherever there's wheat, there's gonna be weeds. And so we, like those farmhands, say, okay, Jesus, what, what are you gonna do? Do you want us to take them out? Is this when we call out the nukes and just take care of them all? We'd love to do it. Jesus, it's not complicated. If, just, if California would just slide off into the Pacific Ocean, that'd be great. And if you could just you know, take care of New York and then maybe D.C., just those three, and we would, we'd be, God, why don't you just do that? God, why does ISIS exist? Could you just take care of that right now? And look, this is a very significant question. Don't you think God has the power to do so? What most people have resolved, even Christians, is that God is either ignorant or he's not potent enough, he's not omnipotent to do anything about it. Or a horrible reality, he just doesn't care. So what are you going to say to a God who lets us go on? And so the farmer says, just here's my strategy, you ready? Let them both grow together. And the reason is, what you guys don't understand, he says, is that there's a subterranean root system. The roots of the weed are mixed up with the roots of the wheat, and you think you're pulling up a weed, but you're actually pulling up wheat. Here's the strategy I want you to do. Verse 30, let both grow together until harvest. And at harvest, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and buy them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So he says, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to wait, because it's not yet harvest time. And harvest time is a metaphor for final judgment. So Jesus explains it over in verse 41. Look at what he says. Excuse me, verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace and that place there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So why doesn't Jesus do something about this? Now listen very carefully, it's so important. The reason why Jesus doesn't do anything is not that he can't or he doesn't know about it, he doesn't care, it's just that it's not harvest time. So why is it harvest time? Because he is still in the process of turning some weeds into wheat. And so I hate that my family suffers because of sickness. I hate that children die of cancer. I hate that there are believers tortured around the world. But every day that God stays his hand, more people can come into the kingdom. I want God to bring judgment, but the beginning of judgment is the end of mercy, you see. And so he says, wait, but do not translate God's waiting for ignorance or impotence. He is going to take care of everything. And that's why Revelation 19 describes Jesus with his laser-like eyes. He sees everything that's going on right now, and one day he will bring justice. So don't worry about the enemies of the kingdom. I mean, some people walk around today saying they're Christian under their breath, like I just can't really bring it up too loud, like they're intimidated to be a believer in Christ. Let me ask this question. If Jesus were here today, do you think he would be intimidated? That's not a rhetorical question, you can answer that. You think Jesus would be intimidated today? I mean, some people act like if Jesus were to walk into a dinner party, you know, today, and there were some Hollywood moguls over there and some famous uh, actors, you know, that are real important to give us their political, you know, wisdom. And over here, there were some new atheists. Richard Dawkins, you know, is, is over here with Christopher Hitchens, that Jesus would be intimidated, like, oh, I'm sorry, I thought this was an Awana's meeting. I'll just excuse myself and slip out. Are you kidding me? Jesus faced the wrath of God for sins and look, if you can face the wrath of God for sins you are not intimidated by intellectuals who while they have brains or robato, do not have wisdom nor humility whatever Jesus is he is not intimidated and in graciousness and in love for our culture we should not be either or to say it in a negative way in so much as we are, are intimidated we are not Christ-like Christ is he's not intimidated by that And look, if you don't catch anything, catch this. Of course there's evil in the world, but the presence of evil in the kingdom is not a threat to the king. The presence of evil in the kingdom is not a threat to the king. So Jesus says, don't worry about the enemies because judgment is coming. He said, okay, but what about the size? You just said we're minority among a minority among a minority. Well, Jesus actually answers that question in the next parable. Look at verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is large in all the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Of course, it's small. Jesus knew it was going to be small. He anticipated this, but he said, It's small but powerful. It's small but potent. It's like a seed, a healthy seed in the ground. It disappears, you can't see it. But once it grows up, it becomes huge. Jesus says, the birds of the air nest in it. And birds were always a symbol of judgment in the Old Testament. In other words, I'm going to make all of this right. So don't worry about the enemies. Judgment is coming. Don't worry about the size. The growth is coming. It becomes very clear from this parable that worry about the kingdom is a sin. Isn't it right? It's, it's not being honest with the king of the kingdom. So what, what are we to do? If we're not supposed to worry about the growth or worry about the size. Well, he answers that in the next Parable. Look at verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Why did he cover it up? Well, there was a legal loophole that said, if you owned a field, you owned everything that was in it. So what he did was the field was super expensive, but the treasure was so valuable and nobody was there. He just covered it up well on whistling. I don't know what treasure. I don't know any treasure. I don't know what you're talking about. And then he went and bought the field. Watch this, way it says, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. That is an odd phrase. In joy, he has nothing. How can you have joy and have nothing? Did you all see that reality show, by the way, about the person who had nothing, but they were just extremely happy? Yeah, neither, neither did I. That never That never happened. You're happy when you have your home extremely made over, right? You're happy when you win a million dollars. How can you have joy if you have nothing? Listen, because if you have the kingdom, you have everything. The guy didn't walk away saying, man, I sure wish I had my money back. I would love. What what was I doing spending? No, he was thrilled because he got so much more than he actually had to pay for what he was getting. So Jesus, after reading all these parables, says to you and he says to me, here's what I want you to do. Give your life for the kingdom. Divest in this world in order to invest in the world to come. Don't fixate all your passions here. And I'm not just saying that as a moralistic person, you know, be good and love Jesus more. That's not the point. The point is just pure logic. If this kingdom is going away, all the kingdoms of the political and business infrastructure that we see, but God's kingdom that is invisible is actually the real kingdom, then why would be any disadvantage to attach ourselves to the actual real kingdom? Somebody said it this way, it is no sacrifice when what you get is so much greater than what you gave up. That's what he's saying. Don't worry about the enemies of the kingdom. Don't worry about the size of the kingdom. The kingdom is advancing because the king is ruling. Give your life for the kingdom. Jesus used this exact same metaphor of the seed so powerfully in John 12 in just one sentence. And listen to this one sentence, John 12, 24. Jesus said, If a seed, unless a seed falls in the ground and dies, it dies alone. But if it does die, it bears much fruit. So the seed goes into the ground. It wants to live, it fights dying. I just want to remain a seed. Would y'all just kind of make me anything more than a seed? I just want to be a seed. Fine, seed goes in the ground, no one ever sees it again, it's nothing. But if that seed gives up, dies, surrenders, then all of this growth and fruit and prosperity come from the life of that tree. And this is frankly a metaphor for me as a dad, a husband. If I go home every day and my ambition is for everyone to leave me alone so I can take care of myself, then I just shrivel up and die. But if I go home and die to my right to have what I want, do what I want, say what I want, have my own time, then out of that, God gives a family. Whatever it is you think God may be calling you to give up and you say, that's so hard, I could never do that. To which God says, okay, I understand that. But you understand, I'm asking you to give up something that you can't keep from some, for something that no one ever can take from you. That's, that's not really a real sacrifice if, if what you get is so much better than what you give up. You may know in John 12, Jesus was using this for another meaning as well. It had a double meaning. It also described him. Jesus, our king, died and like that seed, he went into the ground. But did he stay in the ground? No, he rose from the dead, he came to life, and everything we have from life comes from his willingness to die and be buried. About a few years ago, I got to do something I've always wanted to do. I went to Paris, I was with my mother, so it wasn't incredibly romantic like you're thinking, but I went to Paris. And I got to go to the Basilica Sidonias. Remember, you've been there. It's about 45 minutes north of Paris. It's significant because all the kings of France, except four, uh, are buried there. So very, very significant historically. And um, a few hundred years ago, several hundred years ago, France realized that burying a king is uh, really an awful thing because it can mobilize the enemy, right, who know you're vulnerable, and it can immobilize uh, the people because they're fearful, so they decided to do something about this. They would appoint a king long before that king would die. And so there, as in the basilica, as they were taking that king down into the crypt, they would have the new king standing there. And they would say this phrase, Our king is dead. And then looking to the new king to succeed him, Long live the king. So in one breath, our king is dead. Long live the king. Our king went to the cross and died long live the king we have everything because of his death the kingdom is advancing because the king is ruling so give your life for the kingdom